the Holy Gospel according to John, the 18th chapter. Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I your own nation? And the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered him, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Maker and Redeemer. Amen. It may delight a few of you and pain others of you, but we're going to do some history telling today. In their beginnings as a nation called Israel, they had no king to lead them. What they had was God and the promises of God. And when there was a need or a threat or a crisis, they eventually, anyway, called out to God, who then raised up for them a leader as needed. These leaders were called judges. And their stories are told in the Bible's book of, wait for it, Judges. They included the likes of Samson and Gideon and Deborah, too. Isn't that interesting? God being the one raising up the leaders, they weren't all men. There were pros and cons to the system, but the pro above all pros is that the system required reliance upon God. The pro of all pros, in other words, is that with no palace and no throne and no crown and no government headquarters and no standing army, this was a system that operated by faith, not by sight. The last of the Bible's judges was Samuel. You can learn more about him if you'd like to read the Bible's books of, wait for it, first and second, Samuel. It was to Samuel that the people of Israel came and said, everybody else has a king they can see, in a palace they can see, with armies they can see, and security they can see. We want those things too. Samuel was not a fan of the idea, and he told them so. And he told them, he warned them, that having an earthly king would not only eventually weaken their faith in their heavenly king, it would also piece by piece strip them of their freedom. But they rejected his counsel, and persisted in their request, and so Samuel prayed. And the answer he perceived from God was, It is not you they are rejecting, Samuel. It is me they are rejecting. So, give them what they ask. Interesting response. Seems to me to be an example of God giving people something they wanted, not because God thought it was a good idea, but rather because God thought there was something that needed to be learned, even if it ended up being some learning that was done the hard way. It would prove to be true. So Samuel then anointed 
Israel's very first king. Anointing was done by pouring olive, over, olive oil over one's head as a sign that one had been chosen as king. The word for anointed one in Hebrew is Mashiach. We make it Messiah. In English, the word for anointed one in Greek is Christos. We say Christ in English. And so grammatically, literally, Israel's first Messiah king, Israel's first Christ, the king, albeit with a lower case C and K, was a man named Saul, who at well over six feet tall, towered over everyone and looked really swashbuckling in his campaign posters. Samuel, who was the last of the Bible's judges, functioned now as the first of the Bible's prophets. Prophets being those who spoke the word of God for God to the king and to the people. Saul, in the beginning, heeded the counsel of God from the prophet Samuel, and so doing, he started his reign quite impressively and powerfully and faithfully. But power soon enough did what power soon enough does. It corrupts. And Israel's first king finished his reign ignominiously and faithlessly, seeking counsel not from God's prophet, but rather from the dark side. With Paul, while Saul was still king, floundering in the dark, Samuel was told by God to anoint Saul's successor, who was just a boy at the time, the youngest child of a man named Jesse. The young boy towered over no one. And he wasn't a soldier. He was a shepherd and a poet and a musician whose name was David. We say David. Though not flawless, David went on to become the king who would be remembered as the greatest king and the most faithful king that Israel ever had. And as a commander-in-chief, he expanded and secured Israel's borders. It was the golden age. He was succeeded by his son Solomon, who was remembered for his wealth and for his wisdom and for building the temple in Jerusalem. We don't remember as much what Scripture also tells us, and that is that Solomon's impressive wealth and accomplishments were made possible through heavy, heavy taxes and also the forced labor of his own people. When Solomon died, he was succeeded by his son Rehoboam, who was less than competent, and who was approached by representatives of the northern tribes of the kingdom who told him they would not accept him as their king unless he lowered their tax rates and abolished his father's forced labor practices. Rehoboam, with some young buck hawks for advisors, told them that they thought his dad was tough. They hadn't seen nothing yet. So they said, fine, see you around. We're out of here. And from that time forward, what we had been a relatively stable and strong united kingdom under Saul and David and Solomon became a divided and comparatively weak two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel with its capital in Samaria and the southern called Judah with its capital in Jerusalem with battles and border skirmishes weakening them both throughout the years. And in terms of the kings who ruled them both, there were very, very, very few bright spots and less and less and less and less over the years faithfulness. And the prophets, including the likes of Amos and Elijah in the north and, and the likes of Jeremiah and Micah in the south, were not heeded, but ignored and or mocked 
and or persecuted and or in more than a few cases killed. The true prophets, as opposed to, by the way, the prophets whom the kings appointed for themselves for the purpose of precisely one thing, telling them what they wanted to hear, not unlike, I think, our previous president who liked photo ops and seeking the counsel of prosperity gospel peddlers because that's what he wanted to hear. But the true prophets weren't interested in preaching prosperity uh, gospels. They were interested in speaking truth to power, not by telling truth power what power wanted to hear. And in doing so, they warned both the South and North that their faithfulness and their corruption and their chasing of prosperity and their ignoring of the poor was going to lead to their destruction. And these prophets being true prophets, their words came true. With the northern kingdom falling to the Assyrians in 722 BC, never ever to exist again. And the southern kingdom and Jerusalem falling to the Babylonians in 587 BC, never to exist again as anything other than a puppet kingdom of whoever was the prevailing empire at the time. It was during this time, in the time between the testaments old and new, and under the thumb of one empire or another, that the people began remembering and being reminded of something else the prophets had said, that being that though their kingdoms would fall for their faithlessness, God was still God, and they were still God's own people. And one day, God would send not a Messiah king with a small M and a small K, but rather a descendant of King David who would be the Messiah king with a capital M and a capital K. And God then, forgiving their sins to remember them no more, would through the Messiah king reestablish God's kingdom in Jerusalem. But this kingdom, prophets were clear to say, would not just be for the, for the Jews. This would be a kingdom for all people. And so, for example, in the apocalyptic language that Natalie read of visions in the night, the prophet Daniel had said, I saw one like a human being, a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples Nations and ever languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. By the time Jesus entered the scene, the Jews and their puppet kings, the evil Herod the Great, and his evil sons to follow, existed under the iron fist and boot of Roman rule. And at that time, the hope for the Messiah King was a raging fire among the people. But the most hoped-for Messiah King by the people was one who was understood as a descendant of David who would be just like David, which is to say he would reestablish them as their own earthly kingdom, which is to say he and his army would drive Rome and its armies into the sea. A lesson from history. When church and state marry, 
when faith and patriotism sleep in the same king bed. Again and again and again and again, the state becomes the king with faith as its subservient servant. And so was the case when, by the time Jesus entered the scene, the Messiah king longed for was not a king whose kingdom would be a kingdom for all people, but rather a king who would hate the same people we do and wreak vengeance and destruction upon them for us. In the decades prior to Jesus' birth, as well as in the decades of his lifetime, many, and by many I mean more than can be counted, with swords in hand, claimed to be the Messiah King. With very few exceptions, those who weren't killed fighting the Romans were crucified by the Romans. Jesus was not the first. The Romans crucified thousands. And with no exceptions, their movements then died with them. Jesus, Christians believe and confess, arrived as the fulfillment of those prophets' promises that God would indeed send a Messiah King. But interestingly, in our Gospel reading for today, for example, and in other places in the Gospels too, he seems at best ambivalent and even a little bit reluctant directly to claim the title King. The reason, of course, is that though he surely was and is and still ever will be king of kings, he wanted no part of almost all the baggage people had attached to their hopes and expectations of a Messiah, a king. And so, for example, more than once in the Gospels, we are told that seeing the great things he did, people wanted to crown him king immediately, and he got out of there as fast as he could. And yet, do you know what was the thing that Jesus talked about in the Gospels more than anything else? Wasn't heaven? Wasn't prayer? Wasn't money? Wasn't eternal life? Although he talked about all of those things plenty. But the thing he talked about more than he talked about anything else was, wait for it, the kingdom of God. And what that kingdom was like, not just in heaven someday, although he talked about that too, but also what it is like here and now on earth and that that kingdom was making its arrival here and now on earth with him. But listening to him in his teachings where he said things like love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you and forgive those who sin against you. And listening to and looking at him in today's gospel reading, where the crown he's wearing is not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And it is oh so obviously obvious that he surely didn't come to be a king like the kings whose power and greatness the world defines and then idolizes. Nor did he come to be a king like the king the Jews in their hopes and dreams had defined and then prayed for, he came to be the king that he came to be. And in doing so, to turn the ways of the world's kings and kingdoms and expectations upside down. And in doing that, not only to be the first, to be the first king ever in the history of kings worthy, not only of our loyalty and our obedience, but worthy of our hearts and our worship. 
N.T. Wright, and I'm paraphrasing this, he said, he said, Jesus wasn't the sort of king people had wanted in his day because they were looking for a singer who would come sing the songs that they had been humming all these years. But he didn't come as the singer for their song. He came as the composer and singer of a whole new song. For pretty much inevitably, it seems to me anyway, the songs of the kings and kingdoms of this world, whether they are sung in English or Russian or Chinese or Hebrew or Arabic, are about overpowering your rivals and your enemies and exacting harsh revenge upon those who in any way wrong you, whereas the song above all songs that Jesus came to sing was a song about the power of love, even for your rivals and enemies, and forgiveness, even for those whose sin is sin against you. That kingdom of his, he and the prophets all say, will only be established in its complete fullness in the end, when, as Natalie read, all will see him, and all will know him, and all will bow before him. In the meantime, he says to his church, to those who do know him, I call you in the world to be a foretaste of the feast to come. As in the world, but not of the world, you, in any ways you can, bring hope and help and healing to the world as followers of a different kind of king, servants of a servant king. Let me end, because we are Lutherans, and so this is never a bad idea. Let me end with these words from Luther's small catechism in his comments on the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Your Kingdom Come. What does this mean? In fact, God's kingdom comes on its own without our prayer. But we ask in this petition that it may also come to us. How does this come about? God's kingdom comes whenever, wherever, our Heavenly Father gives us his Holy Spirit so that through the Holy Spirit's grace we believe God's word and live godly lives here in time and hereafter in eternity. Indeed, 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 O Lord, your kingdom come. And now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.